I think we should start off with, so Stan, the main touch point a lot of kind of our listeners, our watchers would have for you is with the vertical diet. Um, it's been hugely successful, obviously for Owen, it's been hugely successful for a massive amount of our athletes over the years who, um, it tends to be our main our main direction we'll point people in for their nutritional stuff. Could you give us some of the background of the vertical diet or how you kind of started developing that thought process? Well, it was mostly trial and error. As you know, I've been competing for over 30 years, since 1986. I'm on both ends of the spectrum. I dieted down using over-restrictive diets and excess cardio to compete at a very low body fat percentage in bodybuilding, and ultimately became an IFBB pro. And I also did a lot of bulking to try and take my 140-pound, 18-year-old freshman in college physique up to a 300-pound power lifter. And so on both ends of the spectrum, uh, I did a lot of things wrong. I learned a lot from trial and error. I always said if I knew then what I know now, I may have been uh, more successful or maybe uh, uh, suffered, I think, less of the downsides of, uh, of over-restrictive dieting and, and uh, uh, I think overeating on the bulking side, doing the dirty bulks. And I had well over 100 blood tests throughout my career. And so I was able to kind of see how these things affected me and affected my performance. Uh, we didn't have the internet back then. I didn't have the information we have today. Even my uh, studies in exercise science at the University of Oregon were, uh, you know, woefully, uh, I, I think, uh, short of the information that we have now available to everyone at the click of a button on on YouTube or, you know, just Googling. Uh, and we've got a lot of great professionals in the industry now that I, I refer to. And so I took my experience and obviously applied it to myself. That's my anecdote, applied it to my clients, which I had thousands of clients. I was a personal trainer all my life since college. Uh, and then, you know, hundreds of, of high school collegiate and professional athletes that compete. And then more recently in the last five years, partnered with a PhD RDN, uh, Damon McCune, and uh, bumped it up against the science to make sure that we were giving, you know, accurate information. And uh, so that's kind of how the vertical diet uh, was, was, uh, was born just out of, I think, competing, coaching, being coached, collaborating uh, with great minds and great athletes, uh, and then just eventually just documenting that and providing it to people. And it's very comprehensive. It's not just diet, of course, as you know, we talk about sleep and nutrition and digestion and uh, hormone optimization, uh, all the things that uh, that go into you know, a well-rounded program so that my clients can get everything that I need them to do to be successful. And I always said that uh, really the vertical diet, kind of the way it came about was I was trying to build a foundation say, well, how, how tall is, can a pyramid be? Well, it depends on, on how large its base is. And so it's really about creating that base. And that base is more than just nutrition, of course, it's in sleep and, and exercise as well and digestion. Uh, but the base includes you know, all the macros and all the micros and the things that uh, uh, that are important for, you know, reaching the optimum body composition and maintaining health, which was very important because a lot of what I do and did for myself throughout my career was kind of mitigate damage because competing isn't necessarily healthy. Uh, I think I did a, a YouTube rant that said, if you want to be healthy, don't compete. Uh, there's a difference between health and fitness, fitness being uh, the ability to perform a particular duty or task and the fitness level required to be a world's strongest man or to be a UFC champion or even a 14-year-old gymnast in the Olympics is not necessarily healthy. So a lot of what we do behind the scenes 
uh, even with a, a, a dad bod or a soccer mom in particular dieting down uh, and suffering from, uh, you know, the female triad, chronic calorie restriction, uh, you know, amenorrhea, anemia, hypothyroidism, all of those things are pretty prevalent in the diet industry today. They were kind of isolated to the competitive industry for many years, but now they've leaked out into the general public and people are applying those competitive competition diets and, and suffering from all those uh, those problems, as mentioned. And so uh, a lot of what I do for, for athletes and uh, for Gen Pop really is kind of mitigate damage, make it sustainable uh, and healthy so that they can have a better long-term outcome. Stan, I think you're probably the main person I've seen in terms of trying to promote health among those elite athletes. So I think everybody kind of gets it at this stage that being the most, like they've been the highest performer in anything isn't going to necessarily make you live as long as possible or be as healthy for as long as possible. But at the same time, as aware of that fact, you seem to be, you obviously really push home with the stuff like with, you know, uh, you talk about the CPAP with Eddie Hall or after, uh, terrible slip of the tongue there. Um, the wrong one. So you, you talk about, you know, making them as healthy as possible, getting people's blood done as much as possible, even for athletes who are not in performance dancing drugs. So it's uh, it's interesting that you push the health stuff as much as possible. And have you seen that drastically or even, you know, significantly improve these elite athletes' performance by making them healthier, you know, the by the, the common metrics you'd look at health maybe? Yeah, you know, and I was concerned about that when I started working with some really, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, high-level athletes. Is what can I do for these guys? They're already genetically predispositioned. They've already achieved, you know, an extraordinary high level of success. And you know, how much can you add uh, to their performance? Ten pounds, fifty pounds, you know, to a deadlift over the course of a year or two, um, and and it it becomes you kind of are concerned that maybe you don't. Uh, you don't have a value add there. They've already kind of achieved all they're going to achieve. Um, we were able to see an improvement in performance across the board with the athletes that we've worked with. But more importantly, we made their job easier. Uh, some of it's just uh, just things like, mechanically speaking, being able to eat enough food for a large athlete. Uh, that can be a, a very daunting task. Uh, you've seen many, many videos of people trying to large athletes trying to gain weight or maintain their mass. Uh, and so, you know, we, we composed a diet plan that just made that easier on them. And then on the, on the flip side of that, the dieting, uh, just making improving satiety and energy and trying to uh, maintain uh, some, uh, some, uh, some sleep over the year, over the uh, last couple of months before competition, you know, you start Things like that start to uh, to suffer, and so uh, by you know utilizing a more micronutrient dense diet, less restrictive uh, on the dieting end, we were you know just able to so for people, it became more sustainable. They could stay closer to competition weights longer uh, or more throughout the year instead of having the significant rebounds, um, and then they didn't burn out. We see that a lot on both ends of the spectrum. We see dieters for. You know, this is bodybuilding figure physique bikini, what I call the professional dieting industry. Uh, they burn out really quickly. They kind of get some some severe metabolic adaptation and a lot of uh, yo-yo dieting going on. Uh, and on on the uh, powerlifters and bodybuilders and strongmen and uh, uh, also the you know linemen in football, you'd see a lot of them burn out uh, from a lot of it from overtraining, which some of that has to do with uh, you know a lot of sleep and nutrition inadequacies. Uh, yielding those those overtraining results, 
so, you know, we just tried to work with, with people on both ends of the spectrum by creating that foundation of things that are really important. And that includes just, you know, general movements, not, uh, not overtraining as well. Stan, one thing that really interests me there is when you're talking about the overtraining or athletes getting burned out after a certain period of time. I remember you talking about half tour when you came to work with him first and the initial thing you did was actually strip his weight back and then build it back up. And I think he got to somewhere around 200 kilos with abs. Is that a kind of factor of just giving his body a bit of a break? Or is that a very common thing you do with someone where the initial step would be to achieve a body composition and then move towards kind of a general mass figure? Yeah, I think that's important for big athletes and uh, just regular dieters. You, you need to achieve a particular body composition. I think you need to get your body fat into a healthy range. Uh, the larger you get, the more side effects that occur. You end up with metabolic syndrome, you get fatty liver, insulin resistance, high blood pressure, you know, a host of things that are, are going to uh, cause all kinds of health problems. And just losing 7% of your body weight, let's put a number on it. If you're a 300-pound individual, you only need to lose 20 pounds in order to realize about a 95% improvement in fatty liver and improve insulin resistance and drop your blood pressure by 20 points. So those things are, are pretty easy uh, interventions to make, but it's hard to convince a large athlete to lose weight because the you know mass moves mass and their strength is kind of tied to their size. And I get it. You know, I'm a, I'm a power lifter at heart, uh, but there's a lot of changes that you can make without any weight fluctuations to improve. Now, like you said, the CPAP, the 10 minute walks after meals, improve postprandial glycemia, which improves blood pressure, just including more potassium and calcium in the diet improves blood pressure. So there's lots of things we could do. But more importantly, I think, uh, obviously, you don't just train heavy all year round. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to periodize your strength training. And we do the same thing with weight. I don't think you should maintain uh, that much body weight all year round, uh, just like you shouldn't maintain 5% body fat all year round if you're a competitive uh, physique type athlete. You know, you have to normalize that so you're, you don't have, you know, on that end of the spectrum, you don't have, uh, you know, decrements in hormone levels and hypothyroidism and hypogonadism for testosterone uh, lowering. So it's just, it's just not optimal uh, uh, body compositions to train at. And if you want to make progress in the off season, uh, then I think that, that um, you need to be healthy. And so those are the interventions that we use to do that. Oh, that's pretty interesting, actually. I've never heard anyone talk about periodizing weight for competitors. So uh, let's say if you had that kind of 300-pound athlete, and let's say he was a strongman because we're talking about them, would you be looking to come in at the heaviest possible for that strongman event? And then immediately after, would you taper off the weight as fast as possible, or would it be kind of a slow decline, start the prep phase, lose weight further? What would that kind of look like? Well, this is another thing I learned from bulking up uh, – you know, dirty bulking as far as the health issues go, but also then trying to cut weight too fast uh, for bodybuilding shows, you, you lose a significant amount of muscle tissue. And so you're better off uh, at least trying to get your, your body set point, if, however much of that we believe. Uh, you're better off trying to hold on to as much lean mass as long as possible, and then to take the fat off more slowly. Having said that, the first 30 days, there's a lot of water, there's a lot of food bulk, there's a, um, you know, there's certainly a significant excess of fat from the bulking time. So I can take, uh, you know, at least 10, 12 
plus pounds off of somebody in the first 30 days and not have any impact on, on lean muscle tissue loss. After that, I want to be more gradual about it. I want to be cautious to, uh, to only lose muscle mass. Now, of course, the, those using performance enhancing drugs are going to have a much better uh, chance of retaining lean body mass. And so that, that becomes less of a consideration. But, uh, but yeah, immediately after a bodybuilding show, you want to um, uh, uh, reverse diet. You want to gain back your muscle without gaining back too much fat. So immediately after a powerlifting competition or a strongman competition, I think you want to lose some body fat uh, in order to get your health back. Because we know, as mentioned earlier, that, that uh, health and fitness aren't, aren't uh, generally compatible when you're competing. And you're going to have elevated blood pressure and and usually all those other markers, I see, uh, you know, kidney and liver enzymes. One of the things that we mistakenly were doing uh, at the Arnold each year was they would get blood tests for the athletes a day or two after the event, which, of course, you know, now your creatinine's just skyrocketed. and uh, It's going to look poor on your, your kidney function just because of it's, a, you know, your EGFR is an estimation based on creatinine and weight. And so everything just starts to, obviously, your AST, ALT enzymes are going to be impacted mainly from myoglobin, you know, muscle tissue breakdown as opposed to, uh, you know, liver function. But those are all things that we consider. And, and so we, you know, we want to as quickly as possible try and normalize those numbers, uh, get our athlete healthy, uh, get them, uh, get them at, a, at a reasonable body weight. And then, you know, that's a good time also to build their cardiovascular base if you're, if you're programming off season, which becomes really important. I, I think we, we had talked about discussing some of this and, and I, I think that's a, a really important thing that a lot of large athletes, uh, I can't say large athletes, but bodybuilders and powerlifters uh, and maybe even strongmen don't put enough emphasis on the, uh, the football players do. They, they definitely incorporate, you know, even year round, a better, uh, they don't get quite as big either. Uh, so carry quite as much body fat either. So uh, that becomes really important. So we, we, we change the way they train. Uh, you know, obviously we just said we we're going to periodize their training and periodize their weight. Uh, so we, we change the way they train as well. Stan, on your point there of the blood tests immediately following the Arnold or immediately following a competition, and you obviously have these temporary heightenings of, uh, or possibly into like a risk factor in certain brackets um, of those values. How long after would you ideally wait from a competition before getting your blood test done? I think seven days would be sufficient on a normal circumstance when you're training regularly at home and not in a competitive uh, uh, you know, situation, probably three days out from a blood test would, would help to keep those AST, ALT, and creatinine uh, numbers from being uh, you know, falsely elevated by, again, myoglobin breakdown. And, and this isn't just lifting. You, you go run a 5K the day before a blood test, you're going to see some of the same markers elevated. So I'm cautious of that. I don't do legs within about five days of a blood test, and I, I probably do my last lift about three days out, and then I go get my blood test, like so see what the numbers are, you know, in the absence of, of all those interfering factors. So you you talk a lot about getting bloods as well. Do you think this is mostly a concern for athletes who are using performance enhancing drugs, or you know the frequency they might get them and the attention they would pay to particular things, or the lack of attention they might pay due to you know whatever they're using, for example. But do you think natural athletes, um, you know, even from kind of the amateur athlete all the way up to the maybe closer to high performing athlete, is that something you'd be just as concerned about? And do you follow those same patterns and frequency of blood tests for the natural compared to a performance enhanced athlete? 
it's certainly more important uh, for athletes using performance enhancing drugs because there's uh, potential uh, really big downsides for health. Uh, blood pressure being the biggest, the most immediate. Uh, that's that's a that's a giant one. That's the first thing you want to intervene on is is get for these big athletes get their blood pressure down and then just weight loss and a CPAP and uh, are kind of the, the primary drivers of that and elevated blood sugars. Um, but, you know, even the uh, Olympic Center tests all of their athletes. And in terms of performance, if you've got things like vitamin D deficiencies or, you know, particularly for endurance athletes and particularly females, iron deficiencies will have a huge impact. And so, yeah, we would like to see for, for competitive athletes a blood test, at least initially, uh, if we find anything, then we can, you know, take action on that and do a subsequent test on those specific markers to make sure that we're uh, we're making improvements. Stan, with your own blood test, you say like you have a massive uh, bank of data there. Is there any gradual shift, or is there any move in a certain direction that you've noticed um, going from being a very high level international competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter through to a, a kind of prolonged career and then through to what you're doing now are there brackets you have simply moved out of in those blood tests or is everything kind of around the same slightly less extreme now than it was back then uh it was a lot more extreme back then uh, and mainly because of the weight these numbers get better and worse as you uh decrease or increase body weight that's as i mentioned a seven percent body weight loss can resolve 95 percent of fatty liver uh, and that is kind of the primary driver of, of metabolic syndrome. Obviously, blood pressure uh, is associated with weight gain. But every time that I, as I got fatter, I had my markers uh, declined. My lipids elevated. My insulin resistance markers increased. Uh, blood pressure obviously would increase. Uh, and then depending on uh, the type and quantity of performance enhancing drugs, obviously your kidney and liver enzymes are also going to be impacted. So, uh, you know, we do everything we can for those athletes, again, to mitigate damage. And I detail that um, in the vertical diet because that's, you know, I have a lot of experience uh, with working with those kinds of athletes as well. And then on the flip side of that, I mentioned, um, you know, the female triad and people who over diet or, you know, are chronically dieting. We got to watch iron. We got to watch thyroid function so they don't uh, start to get uh, you know, metabolic adaptation and hair loss and all those things associated with the, the female triad. How fast and how concerned are you if you see an elevated blood panel or, you know, for a natural or a performance enhanced athlete, if you see that creatinine maybe, you know, 10, 20% above the reference range, do you go immediately look for something and try and figure it out and get more tests? Or do you go, okay, we have a very likely explanation here and we'll just kind of see how it looks over the next few weeks. Like, is there, how, how do you kind of decide when it's time to panic and when it's time to, you know, be like, okay, I'll keep an eye on this. Cause a lot of times, you know, people will get that creatinine high or similar things like that. Yeah. I, you know, obviously we work closely with the specialist. Uh, we're not making medical recommendations here. Absolutely. These are, these are just good indicators for us to make them go see their doctor. Um, with creatinine in particular, you, you know, if, if it seems as though the athlete has some other potential, uh, uh, you know, harmful things going on for their kidneys, then we want to get in and get a cystatin C test because the creatinine, uh, you know, the EGFR is an estimate and the creatinine can be influenced by muscle tissue breakdown. 
So that is commonly elevated in people who lift weights, but might not be indicative of any kidney damage. And so uh, that's when we just asked them for follow-up testing. And, and, you know, we want to intervene on things like um, on, on kidneys immediately, uh, just like we want to intervene on blood pressure immediately because of its impact on the kidneys. Uh, those things are huge. Liver function, you know, if you're 30 days out from a competition, you might not make too many significant changes. Obviously, the weight loss would probably not be warranted if it's a powerlifting or a strongman competition. Um, but, you know, we want to look at that long term. And there's some minor interventions that we can utilize, drinking more water, taking NAC, N-acetylcysteine. Um, you know, we found really good luck with uh, just utilizing small amounts of uh, orange juice uh, with water periodically throughout the day, but a lot of that might just be that they're consuming more fluids. Uh, so we, you know, we can there's some things that we can do uh, to to get some relief in the immediate term, but long term we're always trying to implement a program that improves those numbers. Some people respond, you know, like those people with hypercholesterolemia might have you know elevated LDLs uh, on a on a diet that includes uh, you know a significant amount of cholesterol. Others may not. And uh, there's some pretty good evidence that whole eggs and, and uh, you know, a, 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 I want to say a significant but a sufficient amount of cholesterol improves strength and hypertrophy outcomes. And so I, I don't want to, you know, immediately start eliminating uh, things like red meat and whole eggs until I see that, that they respond poorly to it, uh, at which point, you know, the intervention initially would, would probably be to uh, reduce saturated fats and increase soluble fibers before we would start pulling out, uh, you know, nutrient-dense foods like uh, whole eggs and red meat. What are your kind of gold standards for things you're looking for in your athlete's blood? So I know you used to work with a company where they had a particular kind of uh, like a, a suite of things to look for. But it, say, for example, in Ireland, it's it's quite difficult to get a blood panel, uh, a specific one. You know, you need to kind of have reasons for why when you go see your doctor, you need to have... Uh, issues i suppose quote unquote and you, you know it's very hard to get a kind of a general health panel or a consistency you know there's sometimes there's even a bit of arguing about why you would even need bloods in the first place and you know yeah. wh why would you look at them you know what what what's kind of recommendation in that scenario for people who are not in you know a, a circumstance where they can kind of they have someone you know useful to work with i suppose yeah you know fortunately in the united states we have pretty good access even online i use a company called merrick health m-a-r-e-k health.com and I've even composed a, a budget panel here that's uh, around $100. It's a very comprehensive panel. Uh, but you're right. I do get a lot of feedback from people in, um, uh, in say, Canada or the, or the UK or Australia that don't have uh, as simple of access or can't just do it online without, uh, without a doctor and can't request the test that they want without, like you say, without a lot of, uh, you know, pushback. Uh, but there's you know, some foundational things that we get. Obviously, we're you know, we're going to want to just get a, you know, a complete blood count. And, uh, you know, we're going to want to get uh, your kidney and liver enzyme functions checked. Um, uh, it's nice to, to get testosterone and thyroid, uh, at least TSH. Uh, those aren't terribly expensive tests, at least here in the States, they aren't. Uh, but I do have a comprehensive panel that um, I've just asked people just to send me a DM. And I just copy and paste them the, the blood tests a list of the blood tests that I recommend, uh, you know, inflammation markers, C-reactive protein. Obviously, people get a urinalysis to look at fasted glucose and uh, get a test to look at HA1C, but those are lagging indicators. I like to see lipids so I can see if they have any leading indicators of insulin resistance, like high triglycerides or 
get a fasted insulin test so I can see uh, if they have some leading indicator of, of insulin resistance. So those are, you know, just kind of a, a quick summary of, of some of the tests that we like to see. Stan, I think one of the, the very interesting points you make constantly is the, or the thing you, you tend to keep up on top of in the, the rhinos rants is people being in better shape generally, right? And it is something, there's just, we could name a couple of sports now, but everyone knows what they are, where people tend to just be bigger. I want to be bigger. I want to be stronger. I want to be bigger. I want to be stronger. And they tend to get on this this trainer they get out in front of themselves a small bit and then suddenly their their numbers aren't tallying up with their their body mass where they currently are so now suddenly they have numbers that would be respectable for an 85 kilo lifter and they might be 100 or 110 kilos plus in general do you have a rule where you get them to recomposition or do you tend to get or is it a drop in mass that you almost immediately look for uh, kind of depends on the individual uh, and what part of this, what time of season that they're in for their competitive sport. Uh, generally, you know, I'm going to push pretty hard going into a competition and, and, and do whatever I can do outside of weight loss. Uh, if it's a strength sport, uh, that's, you know, when I worked with uh, uh, Hofdor, you know, of course, we wanted to get him up to you know 440 pounds, like you said, 200 kilos to compete. Uh, and then bring him down to, you know, 390 pounds when he wasn't competing. And it was kind of a hard, uh, hard sell. But uh, ultimately, he noticed that each time he bulked back up, he was able to gain uh, less fat and, and have uh, uh, better blood markers throughout that time. It was just easier on him. So, uh, you know, my goal is is to always look at the underlying uh Things like blood pressure, um, blood thickness, uh, obviously insulin resistance and those things, uh, and then measure performance. Because like you say, some people will add weight but not improve strength or speed. It was kind of my, um, my uh, uh, what I talked to John Jones about when I went down there. He wanted to be 265 pounds. I said, look, you can get as heavy as you want as long as your, your broad jump doesn't decrease. As soon as your performance starts decreasing, then the weight is a decrement particularly for an athlete, an explosive athlete like that, you know, or a football player, I can't start, uh, you know, impacting their, their performance. Powerlifters, strongmen, uh, is a little, uh, you know, it's a little different. Those guys, it is a, it's a one rep max in most cases. Most of the strongmen stuff is really heavy now. It's not, it's not the, uh, a lot of the cardio stuff that, that it used to be. Uh, the Arnold was a really, really heavy show. You just don't see as many of the uh, of the athletes having to perform, you know, tons of reps or medleys as much as they used to. So it's really just about keeping them as big and strong as possible and then getting them, uh, getting them there as easily and as healthfully as possible uh, and then using the off-season to improve their, their uh, what I call their general physical preparedness and their general health and cardio. So on that topic of the kind of intense cardio work see see a lot of your stuff where you're doing kind of hill sprints or stair sprints and you're doing the kind of uh, treadmill runs and we just don't see a lot of that with our strength athletes in particular so you know we see a lot of power lifters uh, weight lifters uh, we don't see them doing a lot of really intense physical cardiovascular work you know so for you're moving your body through space you know so 
uh, one, how important does that play a role in your kind of interventions for the health side of stuff? You know, and, and how do you see that kind of affecting that? And then on the other side of things, how important that is for those athletes' actual strength goals? So, like, how important does it play down the chain in terms of that kind of intense cardio work? I guess, again, it depends on the type of athlete. Now, if you're a power lifter or a strong man, I don't think sprinting has the right stimulus to fatigue ratio. I think that, that sprinting is very dynamic. You know, I use an overspeed treadmill, and so it's less uh, fatiguing on John than say, you know, just sprinting on a track. Uh, I don't think it would have much carryover for that specific type of athlete. Obviously a, a football player would have a huge carryover benefit and they should absolutely be in zone five sprinting. Um, but mostly for strong men and power lifters, they're gonna wanna do a significant amount of zone two. I break that up into the 10 minute walks because I find that the, the postprandial glycemia and the digestion is improved post meal. And so I, I try and get at least 40 minutes a day of quote unquote cardio it's zone two. Uh, it's, it's a lactic. It's generally at a pace that you could probably talk at, uh, but not sing. Uh, you know, it's, it's a deliberate brisk, you know, arms are swinging, uh, has you know, numerous, numerous benefits for uh, even recovering from workouts, you know, frequency being more important than duration or quantity. And so, I do think cardio is huge, but the type of cardio would really depend on the athlete. Strongmen and powerlifters, I do want them to be fast. Uh, I might initially uh, have them run some stairs because it's pretty low impact. It's all concentric as opposed to that decelerating force from sprinting. When you're running upstairs, you just don't get as much uh, uh, you know, eccentric loading and, and muscle tissue breakdown and, and potential uh, you know, injury risk. Uh, you have to watch out with powerlifters and strongmen uh, that what the velocity is like. You get too high a velocity and you're going to start rupturing muscles. They're just too big and strong uh, to move that fast. But in terms of speed strength, which is very important for uh, powerlifters and strongmen, then you want to train that, I think, with, uh, you know, you use your 70% intensity uh, loads using some bands or chains, moving that weight as quickly as possible, uh, maybe checking velocity with a meter. Uh, those kinds of things are great, but it's not cardio necessarily. So mainly the 10 minute walks four times a day, I get 40 minutes of cardio. You could also do that uh, walking with, um, you know, like Westside always loved to, uh, to pull, uh, pull sleds. That's another way that you could stay uh, in an alactic state and get uh, plenty of quote unquote cardiovascular fitness that is mainly concentric and provide a lot of recuperatory benefits from your training uh, and uh, and help your joints continue to get lots and lots of blood which is the primary driver of healing for joints uh, that's uh, um, it's not it's an active therapy as opposed to passive which i find to be much less beneficial stan just on the point when you were talking about so obviously you're talking about training across strength training power training speed training conditioning your different zones of conditioning how does it look when you come into to kind of athletes camp, if it's John Jones and he has jujitsu coaches and possibly striking coaches, and then you're coming in as a performance coach, what does that kind of dynamic look like? Yeah, we meet with all the coaches as we did with John Jackson Wink. We had all the coaches there. And my main goal is some sort of concurrent model that allows him to maintain or improve uh, each of his necessary performance objectives. 
depending on the time frame that we have, you know, whether the fight's three months away or six months away, uh, I would make different recommendations. My main goal is to get everybody on the same page in terms of managing fatigue. That's the biggie. Uh, you have limited physical capital. Uh, it needs to be invested in multiple different areas. You can increase or decrease that capital with, you know, more sleep and, and, and better nutrition, of course. Um, but if I'm, if I've got three different coaches on three consecutive days, all trying to do high fatigue <clears throat> workload, <clears throat> he's never going to be able to recover. So uh, I would stack the fatigue days with, uh, say, Monday, if if I was going to have him lift in the a.m. and then do uh, kickboxing in the p.m., that would be a, a pretty high fatigue day, <clears throat> and I would stack it. I wouldn't have him uh, lifting hard on Monday and then kickboxing Tuesday. Tuesday would be more shadow boxing, jujitsu, uh, you know, not going live uh, so that it would be kind of a low fatigue day, more skill based stuff. And uh, we might pull sleds, et cetera, just to keep his GPP. And you know, the more you do, the more you can do. And so we immediately try and build his total volume. But we're uh, very respective of his fatigue. And there's other ways to manipulate that as well. As you know, just be careful of axial loading. Uh, I don't want to put tons of weight on his spine. Uh, it's just going to create more fatigue. And so uh, maybe more concentric movements. I've had John do, uh, uh, you know, some posterior chain work doing uh, good mornings out of chains. And so the, the eccentric was was crashing into the chains. And that was intentional uh, to eliminate the decelerating force and the eccentric portion of that movement. And then just have him do the concentric uh, up out of the chains. And that could still be reasonably heavy, but, you know, you get less fatigue from it. So those are those are all strategies that we utilize, uh, you know, collectively as coaches to get the most, uh, I think, get John exposed to the most stimulus with the least fatigue. And Stan, in those cases, are you using like a real time marker of fatigue or are you coming in with kind of a rough idea for the volume he'll be able to handle? And then you kind of check in with a vertical jump test every week or so. Um, is it a kind of daily test or what is it? Yeah, we do test uh, a different thing every week. Obviously, we don't want to max squat him every week. And so about every fourth week, third or fourth week, we'll get him, we'll kind of see what his speed is at a, at a 90% of one rep max. Uh, so we do test him on that. Things like broad jump is obviously a little less fatiguing. Um, managing fatigue is, is really a lot of feedback. A lot of it is is psychological. And so, you know, we have to kind of get his perception of how he feels uh and you know we look at things like resting heart rate although that's a lagging indicator that that's kind of an alarm going off that you know we need to take a a light day um it's not too many off days for an athlete like that you know a light day would be you know jujitsu and sled drags or a bike ride uh presuming it wasn't all uphill <laughs> so you know so we do we do consistent measurements and the coaches give us constant feedback and his training partners as to how they feel he's performing and, and we get uh, you know his input obviously so in terms of those lifting sessions what are those kind of go-to lifts you have for an athlete like john someone in a combat sport where you basically get off previous stuff he's done because i know he's been quite a fan of uh, some powerlifting movements before so are you coming in based off that's what he'd like to do or is there other stuff you had that you wanted to do with him how did that kind of look for those sessions yeah, you know, deal, when dealing with, with high-level athletes, you always have to include things they like to do. <laughs> or they'll go find somebody who will. Uh, and these things they're good at is generally what they like to do. And those are things that you don't necessarily need to train as much. 
And then when you, uh, when you do some testing and find things that they're not so good at, they don't necessarily want to train those. You have to find a method uh, that allows you to improve that, that, uh, that the athlete still uh, you know, enjoys, I guess you should say the word. We, he was very strong at deadlifting, and so his posterior, or his, his, uh, his quads were really strong. Uh, but the lockout was, was not as, as strong, and we found that the hamstrings, which is typical, as you know, posterior chain is generally neglected, uh, hamstrings in particular. And so we threw him on a glute ham raise and, and found that he wasn't very powerful there. But within just a few short weeks, you know, we had him up to doing 20 reps on glute ham raises, uh, uh, and that was you know, very effective. Obviously, we push pole legs, you know, uh, and then uh, run, uh, jump, throw. We use the push-pull legs to create the strength foundation so that he can run faster and jump higher and throw uh, more powerfully, uh, which are more, you know, that's your, your GPP kind of slowly transitioning into your um, uh, specific physical preparedness. Uh, for running, we use the overspeed treadmill. Uh, speed is, is, uh, is huge. And it's the least fatiguing, and we could utilize it in for both top end speed and for uh, for endurance doing intervals. Um, uh, for uh, you know jumping, mostly it was it was just speed strength. Like I mentioned, we we try and move heavy weights fast, uh, you know, multiple repetitions. We still kept them down in the strength zone around five reps for with heavy weight, uh, but just tried to move them as much as possible concentrically and explosively. And so that's kind of how we design the program it's it's pretty standard and then progress it over time we measure everything and then challenge him to improve you know one more rep one more set uh, or five more pounds uh, over time so for that sport specific fitness for you know mma or the jiu-jitsu training did you find that the steady state cardio had a large impact or did you find that you had to go to those kind of higher intensity zones or was it definitely a, a mix of both of those having the most impact yeah, we utilized both. He already has incredible endurance. And so we, we really focused more on speed uh, than endurance. And uh, also the type of speed, hip extension. Uh, you know, that's why we liked the posterior chain stuff. That's why we like the, the treadmill as opposed to running up hills because usually you're, you keep your hips back and your, your stride shortens. And, uh, you know, when I, if I want a, a wrestler per se to have a better shoot and takedown, then I'm going to work on posterior chain. I'm going to work on what it takes to get their hips forward. And so we might, if we run hills, we'll run them on the treadmill, it's less fatigue, but we'll make sure that his hips are forward and his stride length doesn't get compromised. And so those are some ways that we can challenge him, uh, but also make sure that, that we're targeting the right muscles. Awesome. John, we want to the business? Yes. Um, so how much time have you got left then? I don't know what time is it. <laughs> it's I think it's quarter to the eight in. Yeah, let's yes. do it. We, we can still go. Awesome. I'll probably be fifteen minutes before I got to wake the kids up. Perfect, school. brilliant. What? So, uh, if, do you so go? I'll do the. Or do you want to do the? I can't. I don't have my glasses. Oh, yeah, glasses. Fascinating. What do you think? We do quick five minutes on. Yes. Staying Jack to 55, okay. and then I'll move on to business. Okay. Thanks very much again Thanks, for Sam, this. Thanks, We appreciate it. We're trying to cover as much sure. as. Uh, Stan, so obviously you are. Probably one of the most jacked 50 plus, well, one of the most jacked people going out compared to the average person, but at 50 plus, it's, uh, you know, very impressive the level of physique and, and strength you still maintain with what seems to be a lot of ease, you know, those 600 pound squats you're repping and when you do some deadlifts. 
What? Uh, how did you find that change in your fifties, composed as opposed to maybe in your twenties and stuff like that? Was there? Did the sessions look drastically different? Um, do you find it's a lot easier to maintain because just because you've been strength training for so long? Is there stuff you get your clients to do that maybe they've started training in their forties that you do differently in your forties and fifties? A lot different. I I don't recover as well as I used to. I I can't train as heavy as often. I know Instagram always gets my top end lifts and that's exciting. If I showed you behind the scenes, the things that I had to do in order to be able to perform like that relatively infrequently in comparison to my history, uh, it would be rather boring and it's the same stuff. I, every single day I take at least three to four, uh, 10 minute, uh, walks or, you know, walking backwards on a 15 degree inclined treadmill at two miles an hour, I'll do intervals on that, uh, dragging sleds, recumbent bike under modest tension. Uh, I do those things three to four times a day. I get 30 to 40 minutes worth of quote unquote cardio every single day. Uh, mine is specific. It's intentionally separated because I find that that, uh, lends itself better to recovery and digestion and, uh, glucose control. My sleep has to be right on point. Uh, I, most days, if I can, I'll get a 20 minute cat nap. I'll just drop down wherever I am and uh, throw on some earphones and uh, a headset, and just set my alarm and try and get 20 minutes. Um, those are the biggies. Uh, obviously, my nutrition's on point. I've, I've been very uh, strict with that for decades. Uh, and I, I have I can't cheat all that often, uh, nor do I really have the desire to. I've kind of always been the type that felt like if I had room in my stomach, I was going to put something in there that, that improved my performance. And you know, you've heard me say, I don't eat foods I like. I eat foods that like me. And I make that decision about an hour after I eat. And I, I'm, I'm all about delayed gratification. If I look at something that might taste good in the immediate, but I know I'm going to be sprinting to the bathroom in 30 minutes to an hour, I, I, it's easy for me to pass over it. I, I already know what, what's going to happen. So uh, I don't train as heavy as often. You probably maybe once every eight days, I'll do a heavy lift and it would be either a deadlift or a squat. Um, the in-between workouts are more hypertrophy stuff, more concentric loading, uh, more range of motion with lighter weight, uh, the kinds of things, uh, you know, less axial loading overall. So my lumbar doesn't get, uh, smashed too many times a week. And uh, uh, those kinds of things collectively, uh, it's never any one thing. It's uh, always a combination of, of many things, allows me to, to stay pain-free. You know, at, at 54 years old, having a long history of chronic tendonitis and hips and knees and uh, those kinds of things that you would expect from powerlifting, um, I'm absolutely pain-free. You know, you see me squat reasonable amount of weight with no knee wraps or sleeves, walked out. I, I, they feel great. I don't have any any niggling aches or pains. I can jump on a, a bike or a treadmill or uh, take a walk anytime I want with no pain. Uh, those those things are more important to me, of course, than the numbers. And I say that knowing that I, I couldn't lift what I used to lift anyhow. I, at, at my, at, uh, there's been periods, that, there's been times at which over the last probably five years, uh, as I reached 50, I was, in, I was kind of... Uh, there's some video of me right as I hit 50. I was trying to set the over 50 world record in powerlifting, uh, and I was, you know, I was doubling 750 pound deadlifts, and I ended up getting injured, and uh, you know, it was just accumulation of fatigue, uh, and I, uh, you know, I hurt my back, uh, and so I'm I'm just not as interested in paying that price anymore. 
it's a it's funny you're you're in a select group of people who have incredibly impressive numbers and now the numbers don't matter anymore it's it's almost always the people who have very very good uh history of training where the numbers don't matter as much anymore i've just seen too many people have have uh career-ending injuries particularly as they get older i pushed the window of the envelope as far as i could i was 45 years old when i totaled that 2303 and I mean, I was five pounds away from something tearing off the bone. I'm sure of it in one of those lifts. And, uh, and you know, I look back now and I'm kind of glad that, that I, I just stopped when I stopped and that uh, I'm, you know, I've had a, a couple of reminders since then. And uh, I just, I, I really enjoy, I just love training. And that's why I do all these other things. I, I sleep well, eat well and recover well so I can have that incredible hour uh, you know, three or four days a week in the gym, whatever it may be, like today's squats. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I woke up early this morning to get with you guys, uh, you know, just to make sure that, uh, you know, I've got a little, little visit at my, um, at my kid's school. And then when I leave there, I'm going straight to the gym and it's all I can think about. And my entire day will be euphoric as a result. And a lot of people my age kind of dread it. They, they consider it an obligation and, it, and it's somewhat painful. Uh, I don't feel that way because I, you know, I, I try not to uh, uh, make it onerous to the point where I'm I am subjecting myself to injury or just continuing to to accumulate fatigue that just makes me tired all the time. I'm just not willing to do it. So I've I've kind of redefined my goals, and now I, I'll, I'll you know occasionally I'll throw a heavy bar on there, but not generally not over ninety percent. But most of the time, I'm, I'm shortening the clock, and I like to do things like five-by-fives, where the third, certainly the fourth and fifth sets are really challenging, but it's only a 70% low. So my exposure to injury is pretty minimal. I think as well, probably just a note on that for people listening, you know, the absolute weight you're lifting matters too, you know. So the lifts you were, you did, you know, and that you would need to get back to if you wanted to improve are you know, monumental weights for anybody, any individual's body to handle. So just because we, we frequently get questions where it's uh, someone's, you know, 45 and they're like, do you think I'd ever squat double body weight? And you're like, I think you'll manage, you know, I think you'll, I think you'll get there. So it's, it's, it's just important to remember that obviously the weights you were lifting and powerlifting are far beyond probably what most people listening to this, if they've started training their 40s, need to be concerned about. So it's not... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably not a concern for them, you know, to push themselves in training. Like the 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 uh, magnitude of the lifts are a little bit different. I think you're a hundred percent right. Yeah, the magnitude of the lifts. Like we were talking about that. You know, my triple is probably or my three to five rep max right now is probably six hundred pounds. That's going to create a lot of fatigue. Yeah, you know. Yes. Uh, but beginners or intermediate people, you, you know, you could just like the starting strength method. You could squat three times a week and still progress. Uh, on five by fives for a long time uh, before the weight got so heavy that the fatigue, uh, the stimulus to fatigue ratio was compromised. And so, yeah, I, as long as, as people are, uh, are cautious about programming so they don't progress at too fast a pace uh, and, and potentially expose themselves to, uh, you know, repetitive strain because you, you do want to recover from each workout. Uh, then, you know, there's two things to look out for, obviously, the, the, the load uh, and the repetitions. 
And as long as you're, you're patient and gradual uh, then, and persistent and consistent, I think that you know folks should be endeavoring to get the double body weight squat and deadlift. That, that, that's, a, that's a very reasonable goal. Uh, Stan, as the last point, um, just before before you go, the other reason I think you're phenomenally well known is um, what Owen in the email has has coined your serial entrepreneurship, but your wildly successful business um, in kind of multiple different areas. You've a finger in a lot of different pies. A lot of our listeners and, and viewers of the channel are really, they're kind of up and coming strength and conditioning coaches. They're uh, learning to be personal trainers. Do you have some quick tips for those guys and girls who are starting off their own business or starting down that rabbit hole? Um, what would be the best things for them to focus on? Or even since COVID, a load of people have changed, trying to change careers in their own business, you know, like unrelated to fitness. And they've mentioned it to us, you know. Yeah, well, I hate to keep pimping my information. You know, obviously, I've got that Vertical Diet 3.0 ebook, which covers nutrition and training. Uh, I've been in 14 countries in all 50 states. I've done over 200 seminars. I've met hundreds of coaches and, and been to hundreds of gyms, met thousands of personal trainers. I was even coaching the personal trainers at Good Life uh, gym chain, the largest in Canada. Uh, and I've seen successful business models and unsuccessful business models, many of them. And I've been an entrepreneur all my life and built five multi-million dollar companies in the last 17 years. And so I feel like I have some good information to offer here. I put a book together called Building a Career in the Fitness Industry that's on my website. It's a, it's an ebook, um, but it goes over step by step what and, and very easy step by step program on what you need to do to make a career. I'm talking, you know, buy a home, raise kids, put them to college, you know, a six figure career in in personal training. It's very reasonable. We've got a working model, uh, a 20 year veteran of the gym uh, personal training business who owns two gyms and has uh, a dozen personal trainers in, in Ohio. Matt Whitmer joined me on this project. Um, and it's definitely doable. I just did a, a pretty lengthy podcast on it on Mark Bell's podcast uh, uh, last a uh, couple of weeks ago and, and gave a lot more details than we have time for today. But um, I strongly encourage people to do that. I was a personal trainer in college, after college. You know, I studied exercise science and worked at gyms and uh, been a personal trainer all my life. I still train people. I trained people while I was owning and operating numerous uh, businesses throughout that, that were unrelated. Uh, it's just been a passion of mine all my life. And uh, I think that people should be compensated for their efforts in such a way that it can be, you know, a rewarding career and they can, you know, also uh, you know, have a, a, a good lifestyle. It's not, you know, private airplanes and yachts and, and, you know, photo shoots in front of Ferraris. It's just not my MO. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, foundational principles. I, I tend to be pretty OCD as I've acknowledged many, many times. Uh, you said I've had my fingers on a lot of projects. Well, I've had a lot of projects fail as well. And, uh, I say you could be great at anything, but you can't be great at everything. And, uh, I do think that you need to, to, aim it at a specific target uh, and then repeat the kinds of behaviors over and over again that gets you closer and closer to that target, you know, break down uh, your path. Uh, uh, one of the things that I said in a, in, a, in a podcast once, or I think it was in a rant, that I think bodybuilding was great for my OCD because it was so regimented in terms of, you know, workouts, sets and reps and uh, meals, 
meal prepping and planning and pre-competition and you know all the stuff that goes into it you, your whole day and week and months were all scheduled ahead of you uh, I said if anybody would employ that same kind of discipline consistency and time management to any income producing adventure you know one of your preference uh, you'd be a millionaire in, in less than five years there's no question in my mind it's just that you know have you uh, have you selected a particular goal have you broken that down into you know achievable chunks and are you consistently uh, you know knocking away at that day by day week by week month by month year by year which you know I have done now for over three decades in both bodybuilding powerlifting and in in business uh, so I those are kind of in general, those are my recommendations. It's just write down your goal, break it down into into achievable, uh, you know, progressible, um, uh, uh, you know, daily behaviors, and then you know, just go about implementing those on, and consistently implementing those on a daily basis. But it it had better be something that you enjoy because it, it's willpower is no way to uh, to power through. Uh, you know, things that you hate doing your body, you're just like your body fights you when you diet. Uh, it's going to fight you if you try and force it to do things you don't enjoy doing. Have you any future endeavors that you're thinking about or anything, anything new coming up? Or are you pretty happy with what you've got? You know, going? now it's pretty much I'm just working with great athletes. Obviously, the vertical diet in itself has been a very successful company. We have the ebooks, we have seminars, we have online training, we have the meal prep company. Uh, I'm writing another ebook, or, or I wrote numerous other ebooks already that are on the website. Uh, strong, stronger, strongest, specific to you know power athletes. Uh, fast, faster, fastest, specific to uh, track athletes, and of course the uh, uh, the building career in the fitness industry. But now I'm writing um, Vertical Kids, which I think is going to be uh, one of the best books uh, that I've got. It's really going to be an educational opportunity for parents and kids to come together and learn about. Uh, their bodies and performance uh, and, uh, uh, you know, goal setting and, and uh, breaking those things down into, uh, you know, a lot of it's compliance things, things that you can easily comply with day to day. It's, uh, I've always said compliance is the science and all that conversation we just had about business and all the um, stuff that I mentioned about the athletes that I trained and making uh, things on them easier. Those are, they seem like little things, but that, you know, I, I design everything so that uh, habits can be formed and that, um, you know, things like meal prepping and traveling becomes very manageable, uh, whether you're, you know, a, a, a real estate agent or a, working out of the trunk of your car or a police fire and ambulance, uh, you know, just having access, having what you need when you need it, saving you time and money. I, I mentioned time management and efficiency then it's you know a lot more likely that you're going to be able to to be, become a lifestyle and you'll be able to consistently uh, implement these things on a daily basis and you become more efficient and effective and then you can take on more uh, responsibility more goals manage a you know a family kids uh, career those kinds of things but still have your you know fitness pursuit uh, you know rather than having to give up one for the other no it's some great advice Stan, thanks very much for your time. We uh, we appreciate it hugely, and we're we're very very long time fans of uh, of the rants and of the vertical diet, obviously. Yeah, thanks guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, thank oh, that's you great. For, we really appreciate it, Stan. Thanks so much.